0: Welcome to The Buzz with ACT-IAC, your source for the hot topics and top issues affecting the federal technology market. Join us each week to hear insights from government and industry experts, stay informed on the challenges facing the public sector, and gain access to valuable reports and thought leadership. Enjoy. Hi, listeners. This is Colin Larson. As many of you know, a major priority of the current administration has been to improve government service delivery to the American public. This has been explicitly detailed in both the President's Management Agenda and Executive Order 1458, Transforming Federal Customer Experience and Service Delivery to Rebuild Trust in Government. This renewed focus on customer experience in government has spurred efforts to reexamine how agencies operate internally and the tools and processes they use to interact with American citizens. This is not a new topic for this podcast, but because it's so important and the work is still ongoing, it's always worth reinvestigating. One of these aforementioned efforts is the Life Experiences Project a framework that focuses on the major life events where Americans have the greatest need to interface with the federal government to help them navigate these challenging moments. These are make-or-break opportunities where a positive experience accessing services will do a world of good, but a bad experience can be ruinous. Over the coming months, we're going to be examining these life events in more detail. There are five total, and we're kicking things off this week with an experience that is both joyful and extremely challenging, having a child. What do new parents, particularly lower income parents eligible for federal assistance, have to deal with when navigating government benefits? To explain more, I'm joined by OMB's Federal Customer Experience Lead, Amira Boland, who will introduce us to the life experiences framework, and Maya Mechenbeyer, the birth and early childhood project lead from the US Digital Service who headed up this research. Amira and Maya, thank you so much for joining me on The Buzz with act
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Uh, so, Amira, I'd like to start with you as the CX lead. Um, this life experience framework, uh, where did this come from?
1: Absolutely. So, you know, a new mom should not have to figure out whether a program is ultimately run by their state government, the Department of Health and Human Services, the Department of Labor, the Department of Agriculture, SSA, Housing and Urban Development, A disaster survivor should not have to go through the damage to their home or business with the government more than once. A retiree should not have to be afraid of the important choices they make around claiming retirement benefits or whether their Part D plan covers their prescriptions. And the United States federal government was created over more than two centuries into a patchwork of agencies and statutory responsibilities spread out across the bureaucracy The way our service delivery works is a result of programs created by different laws, appropriations committees, agencies, bureaus, and even IT shops. And so the whole life experience organizing framework requires this new model of delivery like in a whole system working together within agencies, across agencies, even across levels of government driven by customer human-centered design research, rather than within the bureaucratic silos and the preconceived solutions that we often have to solve problems. And so, you know, that results in too often people having to navigate a tangled web of websites, offices, phone numbers, and government needs to better meet people where they are and be responsive to how they navigate those moments. So about a year and a half ago, President Biden signed an historic executive order directing this whole of government approach to improving customer experience and has really driven the administration's effort to ensure an effective, equitable, and accountable government that meets the needs of its people.
0: So moving into this this life experience framework, you know what are what are the new approaches that you all wanted to take in service delivery?
1: Yeah. And so like as you and many of your listeners are probably aware, this has been an area of effort across several administrations. Right. So I think what we've really seen, though, is how this executive order in particular has changed the game for people in the federal government to be empowered to make progress and have a forum to take on tough cross agency problems that had previously stalled because the burden to keep going was, quite frankly, too high. So the CXEO was deliberately designed to tackle these common pain points, things like siloed budgeting, the lack of clarity on who can make a decision, accountability frameworks that are entirely oriented around program integrity and single program output measures. And there's a lack of incentive to work across agencies. All of these are at the expense of someone actually being able to navigate a service, um, which, again, I'm sure many in your community are familiar with as well. And so because of this directness towards solving those pain points to delivery, those battle scars of implementation we all have um, that were, you know, inform this EO, it makes me confident that this time it's different because the EO makes it no longer acceptable for federal agencies to say, well, that's a state-run program, so we can't really influence how it's run by explicitly calling out federal responsibility for programs that are state administered, recognizing that we own the delivery chain. And ultimately, if the public is holding us accountable, we must so ourselves um, and we ran an effort in early 2022 to have leaders at the highest level of government designate these five specific priority moments, approaching retirement, facing a financial shock, recovering from a disaster, having a child in early childhood, and navigating transition to civilian life from the military. Um, You know, those life events are shared by millions of Americans each year, and they represent a cross section of the kind of services our government provides and a cross section of life itself. Um, and so having those you know, deputy secretaries sign charters acknowledging upfront, this is long-term transformative work. This is system change work. This is hard. (laughs) And that's why it hasn't happened before. And sometimes the solutions may not be in the interest of my individual agency, but are in the interest of the American public and require collective action. Um, Having them do that at the start, I think has really
2: made a difference as well.
0: In future episodes, we will explore some of those other life experiences you mentioned. Today, we're focusing specifically on having a child, early childhood. Uh, for those who may not be aware, even for those who have had children and maybe are not aware of all the process that's happening in the background, where does the federal government and what agencies come into play when people have a child and, and when that child is you know progressing in age from up to the age of five in this case?
2: So many eligible low-income families have a lot of challenges when it comes to accessing different government programs. These can include programs like Medicaid, CHIP, which is a children's insurance program, WIC, which is um, supplemental uh, nutrition and support for uh, new mothers um, and their families up to age five, SNAP, which is food assistance, again, child care um, subsidies or vouchers, housing vouchers, Uh, The list goes on and on. So there's a lot of actually really supportive programs that we offer um, that families either don't know about or they end up stuck through the application process halfway through because of complicated requirements, in-person requirements sometimes, um, documentation that they need to provide that they're unable to provide. And just too often, the difficulty of even knowing what these programs are and that they exist um, can prevent families from reaching these critical benefits that could actually have such a huge impact um, on families, especially during years when um, children are having really crucial developmental milestones and need things like safe and stable housing, nutrition support, um, high quality child care, all of those great things. So what we know and what we've heard from families is that um, the challenges that parents face during this time, especially having a child, can be really overwhelming. Um, And our multidisciplinary, multi-agency team has really come together around these goals. Um, This includes folks who work for the Department of Housing, Department of Health, which has numerous programs that even I, as a long-term fed, have learned about new programs, um, particularly with our partners um, at the Administration for Children and Families. They do so much great work. Um, and I've been learning you know more and more things as I have carried on in the last year and a half of uh, running these projects.
0: So of federal programs for new parents um, of of among people who are eligible for these programs, roughly what percentage of them are not seeking services uh, as a result of some of these barriers you mentioned?
2: It's an interesting question. So not seeking might be different from other reasons why they're not participating in the program. But I can just say, you know, for WIC, we know that there's an enrollment gap. We know that there's a lot more eligible families that could be enrolled in that service. I think the same is true of SNAP. For programs like housing and childcare, it's actually different because we have supply issues. We have supply side issues where um, there is massive demand and um, we just can't always fulfill the demand because there just might not be enough housing available. Or there might not be as many childcare providers available. So it really depends on the program. Um, but we could certainly follow up and give you some statistics based on uh, WIC and SNAP in particular, it might be interesting. Another thing to focus on, and that
1: that space is churn. So there's the initial application, but there's also in some states it's estimated as as many as twenty percent of families enrollees that are you know enrolled in a program fall off it because they just fail to do the paperwork requirements to recertify, and they're still eligible, but they just have to you know, redo the application. And and then, so then you're creating double the work if up to a fifth of the people applying are people that just got kicked off only because they didn't catch the letter in the mail or send the right documentation in by the right date. Um, And so I think a lot of this work is also trying to streamline the recertification process in addition to the initial application process.
0: I'm sure this question of uh, duplicative application filling will come up uh, frequently in this series. I know that as a part of this life experience project, you all conducted listening sessions. First off, what's a listening session? How does it work? Why is it important? And then we'll get into what people said at these sessions.
2: Yeah. um, So people define listening sessions, I think, in a lot of really different ways, right? Like focus groups. We did a lot of one-on-one interviews with families um, through a human-centered design process that we ran through our team, um, which was largely comprised of the U.S. Digital Service at OMB. Um, We did virtual and in-person interviews with 121 people total over 10 states in both English and in Spanish. Um, Participants in these interviews included single parents, people facing housing um, insecurity and homelessness, people with disabilities, people with low English proficiency. Um, LGBTQ families, um, you name it. So we interviewed a lot of really interesting and different people across geographies in the country and we learned so much. Um, We heard stories from domestic violence survivors who are struggling to obtain emergency housing. We heard how hard it is to actually understand your benefits under programs like WIC and SNAP while actually grocery shopping for your family. Um, We heard families difficulty in keeping up with program requirements and timelines while the whole time they're working and raising um, their small children. Uh, One participant in particular explained how they were in labor in a hospital and never asked, they were never asked if an interpreter was needed as they went through that process, which can obviously be a very scary process, especially for first time parents. Um, This clearly limited her ability to be able to express her needs and advocate for herself to her hospital team. Um, And she also had to sign paperwork, which she wasn't able to understand. This is kind of one example of uh, the types of things that we hear. Other folks said that the process of applying for benefits is time consuming and complicated, as we've been talking about. Um, And this burdensome process makes families in need with young children. Um, It just puts them in a really difficult position as they're taking care of a newborn and um, trying to provide some of that essential care. Um, So just in general, families who have these benefits face a lot of barriers, and we heard um, a great deal about their stories during this process. Uh,
0: Now I'm curious, both of you, as I learned before we started recording, uh, have young children yourselves. So I'm curious, you're kind of on the inside, you have all of this institutional knowledge, how did you all feel navigating the parenthood process with young children and and knowing about some of the things that programs that are available?
1: I was just gonna say it's so hard. And and we know everything. It's <laughs> like we know as much as you could possibly know about what's available, what's needed, but even from you know, making sure that you get the so and and you know, Maya and I are in a very privileged position where we don't need WIC um or, you know, SNAP, but We're, you know, figuring out how to make sure that your child's social security number is registered and that you get their card and then you get their birth certificate and then you get their, you know, passport or something else, right? Like and oftentimes you need the birth certificate to even start the process for if you were to apply for WIC or SNAP or something. And so it's like if if even just that part was hard enough for us, I can't even imagine if you're a single mom, if you're a mom that's trying to get back to work fast, like we both had vacation and sick days saved up that we could take off. So I think, um, you know, it's it becomes so real. And I think that's why we're both so passionate about this is that we know how hard it is when you have every advantage. So imagine. Um, and we also know how important it is early on, like those first five years, as we know, make the difference for children in so many ways, socially, developmentally, physically, emotionally. Um, and so, you know, it's the greatest investment we could possibly make to make you know, those first few years work better for families.
2: Yeah, and I'll just add um, one thing, Amira and I are very fortunate also to be personally friends and have been for a long time since we've been in the government together for a while. And our kids both started school today. So we're very much in the middle of, you know, those administrative requirements like vaccinations, you know, forms, all those things that you have to fill out. And it's just as Amira's saying is um, we in our you know positions, we're very lucky to have a lot of support, to have paid leave, to have all of these things. And um, it still can be so difficult for families like ours to manage all of this on top of our jobs. Um, and not to mention the days that your kids are sick, right? This is a universal problem that I think so many parents deal with, right, across the country. Um, how you juggle job responsibilities when your kids are at home. Um, all of these things are really universal. We've heard them from families of all income levels.
0: Yeah, so uh, sort of a, a common theme here is that for many people, the burden of seeking assistance is on the applicant. Um, And as you've mentioned, these are difficult processes to navigate. Are there strategies that arose as a result of this framework that can help address that problem to take some of the burden off of the individual uh, to navigate this, you know, these programs?
2: Yeah, I can talk about the three programs that we um, developed and created and um, are working on right now um, that kind of address directly some of the feedback that we heard from families. Um, So the first one is called Benefits Bundle. And I think this one really gets to your question. Um, What we heard so we're the U.S. Digital Service. Right. So one of the first questions we asked ourselves as we were moving forward in this research is, um, is what we need like an app or a website? Or is there a technical, you know, some tech solution that can help um, the situation for families? And actually, resoundingly, what we heard is that families want a human support through this process. They want somebody who they can trust, who has lived experience who speaks their language, who um, is just maybe a little bit ahead in the parenting journey than themselves, who can act as a guide, um, but also is enough of a peer where there's that trust and somebody who they can trust to pick up the phone, answer a text message, um, et cetera. And so we are piloting a program called Benefits Bundle with our colleagues at HERSA, which is really a human-centered approach for helping families navigate through some of these supports, Um, Our goal is to collect low income families, um, connect low income families who are welcoming a new baby to a bundle of supportive services, including things like Medicaid and WIC, um, through this kind of convenient personalized case management that would be provided by a peer. Um, And we're currently piloting this in six areas, including New York City, Los Angeles, Atlanta, South Carolina, Louisiana, and Turtle Mountain Reservation. And so those pilots kicked off this summer, and we are going to be doing some data collection and I think reporting hopefully this fall.
0: Great. Well, uh, hopefully we can maybe revisit that when that data comes out. Uh, You mentioned there are three customer-centered pilot solutions. That was the first one, benefits bundling. Second, I know, is the newborn supply kit. Let's talk about that.
2: Sure. Um, So this one, we heard from families that basic physical supplies um, are just very hard for families to come by, including things like diapers, um, car seats, baby carriers, all of these items can just be a little overwhelming to figure out what do you even need as a new uh, baby enters your family, and um, also just basic affordability. And so the newborn supply kit is envisioned to be a one-time universal service, that we are gonna deliver in collaboration with community organizations, providing low-income families with some of these basic supplies, as well as resources about federal programs. So going back to that question of what are the different modalities and ways in which we can reach people with this information, um, the newborn supply kit is just one of those modes. So we're piloting this program in three states with hospitals and community-based organizations um, in Arkansas, Louisiana, and New Mexico. And we've actually deployed, I wanna say over 800 kits so far this summer. Um, And again, we're hoping to, I think, 3,000 by the end of the year, and we'll be reporting shortly on some of the feedback that we're already hearing from families about how this impacted them. Hopefully, um, we hope it make them it makes them feel more supported um, as they go through uh, those tricky first few weeks. Um, and then the last one is about text message notifications. So this is the one that's probably the most tech-enabled of our three projects. Um, we're partnering with our colleagues at GSA's Benefit Studio to pilot um, a lightweight SMS-based text messaging platform that would provide families with information about recertifying for programs like Medicaid and CHIP. Um, We've just kicked off a pilot with a county in Virginia, so we're excited to kind of learn more through that process about the the kinds of things that people are interested in learning about um, and modifying the tools so that it can be the most useful for our partners and for families.
0: Interestingly, none of these solutions I would call particularly high-tech. That's right. um, But uh, relatively straightforward instead. That's right. Um, You mentioned something interesting during uh, your description of the newborn supply kit, which is community organizations. Um, And this is probably from a, um, I don't know, political organization standpoint, the furthest down you can go from the federal government. So that's quite a massive gulf in terms of, I would say, geographic and theoretical distance that you would cover. So how, as a federal entity, should you go about engaging with local community organizations on the ground? And this may seem obvious, but why is that important?
2: Yeah, um, we, so actually our pilot partners for Benefits Bundle as well, the six sites that I mentioned, um, they're all community-based organizations as well. And I think this is for a few reasons. When um, we did a lot of, before we selected our pilot partners, we did a lot of research on the ground, design sessions. Um, We did also talk to different types of entities. We talked to state governments. We talked to academia. We talked to, right, like university-run programs. And what we really found is these community-based organizations, first of all, it takes a whole strategy, right, with all of these partners working together to really reach the families that we want to reach. Um, And we are working with hospitals as well for newborns that like it. Um, But at the same time, community-based organizations really do seem to be the closest to the family experience. And I think one notable thing that we found in our design sessions is that a lot of the community health workers and case managers that we talk to that work for these CBOs, as we call them, um, are uh, often alumni of the program themselves, right? So they come from the community. They're intimately connected. These are their neighbors and their friends. And just this is their community. And so when we spoke to those caseworkers, um, some of their stories you know, themselves, they um, had children, they went through these, this process. A lot of the caseworkers are on programs like Medicaid and WIC and SNAP, and so they're going through the exact same experience. And I just think that it's it's really a rich discussion that we have with these communities on the ground. Some considerations, as you mentioned, you know, what do we, what do we want to think about as federal government when we're entering these spaces? I think we really want to build trust, right? So we want to come in not. Assuming we have all the answers, but instead respectfully asking questions, really building on a long tradition of work that these organizations have done in their communities and the history that's there, and all the lessons learned, all the expertise that these folks have gained over time and over years. I think one thing that's striking to me from some of the design sessions we did is that many of these um, community health workers have been in these jobs for like 10 plus years. Um, and they're not doing it because the pay is fantastic, um or the hours are great, right? They're doing it because it's so meaningful to them the work um so we've really just enjoyed uh those partnerships. I've personally learned so much from it, and I know my team has too.
0: I'm curious. this is a very complicated process of trying to reimagine this entire benefit system that has accrued over many decades and has thus become this tangle. How have some of the partners, state, other federal agencies, responded to this, this model, um, which I think in a lot of ways shifts responsibility in ways that they may not be used to.
2: Yeah, I can take that. Um, Amira and I were fortunate also to visit um, Bridgeport, Connecticut, is one um, uh, region that we visited as part of our research last year. And I think they have a really interesting model where they've taken on a very hyper local level... All the different types of stakeholders in that community and rally them around one common goal of improving early childhood and developmental milestones for the children of Bridgeport. And I think it does take that kind of integration of um, federal, state, local, CBOs, um, funders, right, like bringing all the people in that community together to see if they can rally and work together and align against some goal that they can all share. Um, We did a similar interesting design session in Harris County, Texas, um, with some partners over there. Again, just trying to bring together all those layers and say, how might we, what is the responsibility that each of these layers carries when it comes to changing the experience for a mom who's having a baby in the greater Houston area, for example. Um, And the local public health department there was really um, exhibited some really excellent leadership in bringing some of those folks together. Um, I think there's just huge opportunity to go around the country and do very similar work, Um, just aligning partners um, in of itself is a huge task of the job.
1: I think that's one thing we saw, you know, is the power of this EO is that the and what what can be so useful is that the federal government has enormous convening power, even if it's not directly Implementing the program, if like states or CBOs or other nonprofits like receive funding and, and kind of implement the program in a community and are often a more trusted partner in the community. But having the federal government show up and bring folks into a room to rally around, as Maya said, like a common measure or, you know, an integrated life experience is, is something that we can do. Um, and so that's a lot of what this effort has been. Similar on the facing financial shock front as well.
0: What are some continued challenges uh, when it comes to the zero to five life experience um, moving forward?
2: Sure. Um, So I think first, translating complicated program requirements into plain language and simplifying those processes into something that we can easily communicate with families about, I think, remains a challenge. Um, We've been really pleased and a core component of this work has been to work with our federal partners to figure out how we might do that, right? Do some of that translation. Um, And we've been really pleased to discover that so many of them are aligned with this goal and everyone really does want to focus on making things easier for families. So we've been able to produce um, different guidance documents and FAQs and and things like that that can help community health workers and case managers communicate more effectively and simple terms that um, everyone can kind of understand. And then I think the second challenge is we are always looking to hire more technologists and uh, designers into the federal government. Um, who have expertise in service delivery improvements so that we can kind of continue this um, culture sh- change and shift that Amira has been discussing um, throughout all of our federal partners. The federal government is a huge apparatus and so much progress has been made, I think in the last 10 years on even just educating folks on human-centered design and how we might take a customer experience type approach to how we communicate with um, the public about our programs and services. Um, But I just I have to put in a plug um, for U.S. Digital Service. If you ever wanted to come and join us and see what it's like to kind of reimagine how the government can work from the inside out, um, you can apply on our website at any time, usds.gov slash apply.
0: And check the episode notes for a link to that. Maya, Amira, thank you so much for joining me today. Amira Boland is the federal customer experience lead at OMB. Maya Mechenbeyer is the zero to five life experience project lead at the U.S. Digital Service. Any final thoughts?
2: Thank you for doing this. Yeah. Thank you for being interested in the topic and the support. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Stay tuned for more episodes about the life experience framework. We will be speaking with other project leads. Um, so be sure to subscribe. And that's a wrap on The Buzz with ACTIAC. Join us next week for more hot topics and top issues affecting the federal technology market. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. And follow us on Twitter at ActIAC. More information about today's show can be found in the episode notes. For more insights, visit www.actiac.org. Thanks for listening.